But the title of the, the series or the message, the study through Corinthians is called Be a Believer. First Corinthians, Be a Believer. And what I enjoyed most about this was just how, you know, I have it later in my notes, but I'll tell it now. When I first became a Christian, I remember reading First Corinthians and just on my bed at night in my, in my mom's house upstairs, reading this with a little light and just feeling like, man, I don't know that I understood it or anything. But it was just, wow, a lot of this stuff is just so simple and so straightforward, especially because, as we'll see, Corinthians, the church in Corinth, uh, wasn't exactly a church that had it together. Uh, they were doing some things that were downright awful. Uh, and I think that that's why Corinthians is so great, because in the midst of their being awful, it was an opportunity for Paul to just be very blunt with them. And uh, I, I like when people are blunt with me. It's easier than trying to play politics and second guess. Just tell me what you're thinking. Tell me what you're feeling. Uh, don't make me try and figure it out because I'm not that smart. But the title of the, today's message as we pick up 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, verse 17, uh, is judge ourselves. Judge ourselves. Judge is a very popular word, a very divisive word in our world today. And the Bible tends to use the word judge if we're just taking it from an English perspective. We're not going to dig into any of the other languages, right? But there's two types of judgment that it talks about. There's obviously... Uh, condemnation, right? Don't judge me, bro. Like we're not supposed to judge other people to say that they have no hope whatsoever. As much as it looks like it, as much as it's probably true, you and I aren't the final determination whether they go to hell or not. We can say, hey, based on what you're doing and on what the truth of the scripture is, yes, what you're doing will send you to hell, right? But we're not the ones who send them there. In fact, they're the ones who send them there because they've, cho they've chosen condemnation over God's forgiveness and salvation, right? But we can say that. But And people say, don't judge me. Well, I'm, I'm not judging. I'm not saying you're going to hell for sure because you still have time to repent. And that's the heart of it, that there's still time to repent. There's still time to turn around. And that's why when Alicia brought it up the other night about we were talking about the flood, when God killed everybody on earth, he did it with a sorrowful heart. He didn't enjoy it. When we judge others, it should be with that heart of, man, we, want, we don't want you to be judged. We don't want to say, you're going to hell. We want to say, don't go to hell. But you're going to if this continues. And then the other side of that is discernment, judging between right and wrong. Saying this is clearly right. This is clearly wrong based on what the scripture says. And it's just discerning. It's this is for me or this is not for me. As a child of God, this is for me or this is not for me. And that's discernment. And people like to get that twisted in this day and age that if you, say, if you just disagree with someone, you're somehow a bigot or judging them. Well, I disagree with you because what you're doing is destroying you. And it's not even just destroying you. It's a lie and you're trapped in it. But we won't go down that road today. Uh, so we remember as we studied through Acts about Paul, right? Paul was a Pharisee. He was, hated the church. He tried to get rid of the church. And then God showed up one day and knocked him off his horse. And he started building the church. He was changed by Jesus. It wasn't that he was reading one day. It was that he was out on his mission and God got a hold of his life. But Paul writes this letter and he writes several letters to the Corinthians. Uh, scholars believe that there are actually others that we don't have. Uh, we have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Perhaps there's another one in between or after. Um, but he writes this letter to them um, while he's in Ephesus. And it's interesting because Corinth and Ephesus are very similar cities in their day. To us, Corinth, what's Corinth? Ephesus, what's Ephesus? But they were big cities in their day and in their region. Corinth, uh, it was called the Isthmus of Corinth. There was like a, a, a line of land between two bigger pieces of land. It had a lot of sea access. Uh, they used to like bring ships over it and stuff. Apparently some of the geology has changed over the past couple thousand years. Uh, but from uh, my study at least 15 years ago, I learned that it had about 750,000 people in this city. That's a lot of people. That's 68% of the population of Montana lived in this one city. Or another way, it would be 21 Helenas put together would be this city of Corinth. Uh, and even then, think about that. Think about the world population 2,000 years ago. It was not 8 billion people like it is now. So this was a very, very big city of its day. And it was a famous city. You know, we all know New York, city never sleeps, money, Broadway, fashion, my favorite song, New York, New York, what a wonderful town where the sky is brown and the water is brown. Philadelphia, known for cheesesteaks, American history, cream cheese, Hollywood, movies, famous people, rich people. Beverly Hills, Las Vegas, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. 
their nickname, I don't know why you'd want this nickname, but the nickname is Sin City. Uh, you know, I don't, are there Christians in Las Vegas? I'm sure there are, but <laughs> maybe they stay there. But Amsterdam, known for bicycles, drugs, red light district, right? All these world cities have a reputation, and Corinth itself had a reputation. And there was even a saying that went along with it, and it was to live like a Corinthian. So let's just go out it. you know, it was, I think it was their YOLO of the day. And YOLO is even dated now. It's showing how old I am. But you only live once. To live like a Corinthian. It meant wild partying, uh, immorality, all that stuff. And I'd imagine it's what some people in the East think of the West today. I won't get into the Russia-Ukraine war, but part of the, Russia's side of it is they don't like the influence of the West. And not that Russia's a great place by any stretch of imagination. But they don't like that influence, that Corinthian influence, God bless you, of the West coming into their society, at least in name, right? Putin's, he is what he is. But the letters to the Corinthians were very corrective letters. Uh, like I said, the church was not in a good place. They, had, they really didn't have much of anything together other than they came together as the church. But I believe they really lacked adherence to biblical authority. And I'm, I'm not even sure they understood the authority of the Bible to begin with, let alone maybe even understood the Bible or knew what the Bible had to say in the first place, right? They understood Jesus. They understood forgiveness. They understood, well, they thought they understood God's love. But they didn't really know how that played out. And they didn't really live it out. And yet they were still a big church full of people who, if you ask them, they would say, yes, I love God. I'm a Christian. But I think worse than that, they even thought what they were doing in some cases, if you read through First and Second Corinthians, what they were doing was enlightened. <laughs> that what, what we're doing is just somehow amazing. It's God's love. It's loving. It's wonderful. It's what well, Paul calls it out in some other place. He goes, cut it out. What you're doing... You guys are approving of stuff even the world doesn't have a name for. Like, get a grip. Like, get this, these people out of your church. But thankfully, we're not looking at that today. I have to bring it up because it puts into picture, into place, what Corinthians was for us. And I wonder, where do we get the authority in our lives? There's definitely certain places that want to say they're the authority on something, right? You know, all these governors during the quote-unquote pandemic, wanted to assert authority over all angles of life. And I was listening to a, a great podcast the other day with a former CIA analyst and he was talking about these governors. It's like it was child abuse. They were making kids sit outside in 20-degree weather, feet apart, eat lunch, and between every bite, put a mask back on. He's like, who's in jail for that? Who even lost their uh, political office for that? Like, what were they even doing there? But where do we get that authority from our lives? Is it Dr. Fauci? Is it education? Is it popular thought? You know, that very popular TV show, The View, that millions of people watch? Is that where you get your authority on things? Is it the news? Is that where you get your authority on things? Is it the newest fad? Is it the professor? Is it the teacher? Is it even your pastor or religious tradition? Is that what gives you and tells you what the actual authority on things is in life to make a decision, a discernment? a correction on what's right and wrong, a determination there? Because that's what they do. I mean, that's what all the communists in history knew. Give me the children, right? Hitler Youth. The Maoist Revolution began with the kids. I mean, think about the stuff that they're teaching our children these days in public school and probably even private schools that we've seen in some videos that have come out lately. But what are these kids going to be doing in 10, 20 years? I mean, the Nancy Pelosi and the people in government right now are children of the 60s, right? And the revolution, you know, quote unquote, revolutions and enlightenment of the 60s and the things that they're doing now. I can't even imagine the stuff that the kids in school today would be putting into uh, power 20, 30, 40 years from now if we make it that long. I mean, it, it kind of makes sense. Oh, they, yeah, they will exalt some guys, the Antichrist. But again, I don't want to go down that path again today either. But I bring up the point of authority because where does the authority in our lives come from? Is the Bible the Word of God? When we read the Bible, do we say that this is the Bible? This is the Word of God. When the, when the Bible says something, it's saying what God says on a topic. Is the Bible the authority on truth? Is the Bible the authority on what God says? Because it is the authority of everything.
Because I think a lot of times, even as believers, we come to the Bible, and whether we realize it or not, I think we question its authority on things. When it says simple things, you know, sometimes it says it plainly. This morning, this is a divisive one, but I was reading in Mark this morning, and the Pharisees, I think it was the Pharisees, Sadducees, you know, the guys in the robes show up and say to Jesus, you know, well, what about divorce? You know, is it lawful to divorce somebody? And Jesus said, I love how Jesus acts because he goes, well, what did Moses tell you guys? Because they love Moses so much. And he goes, well, Moses said that we could write a writ of divorce. A guy could go out and say, I don't want to divorce. I want to divorce my wife, right? And in fact, they even got to the point where it was like, if she was a bad cook, they could divorce her. And I get that, you know. Thankfully, my wife's a good cook, so there's no, no risk ever there of that. But the point is, he said, Moses gave this to you because you guys have hard hearts. Because the authority of God's word says, in the beginning, God made them male and female, and the two shall become one flesh, and let not man tear asunder what God has brought together. Jesus says, he gave you divorce because of hard hearts. Moses gave it to you because you guys were too hard-hearted to trust what God had said. And he, said, he goes on to say that if a man divorces his wife and goes out and marries another, he commits adultery. And if a woman divorces her husband and goes out and marries another, he commits adultery. So what is Jesus really saying? He's saying that God does not like divorce. Now, my parents were divorced, right? God does not like that, right? But it wasn't, I don't believe it was my mom's fault. I believe my mom did everything she could, and my dad continued and went off and did his own thing. So do I think that my mom committed adultery in that sense? No. My dad did, right? And not to call out my dad for this thing, I apologize, it's just an example. We've been forgiven, there's restoration and all that stuff. But as an example, no. But the same sense, like, is God's perfect plan reconciliation? Absolutely. But there is a case where that's not always possible. And even Jesus says in other areas of Scripture, when there's adultery or abandonment, that's okay, right? But God's purpose is always for reconciliation. That, even if that does happen, that there would be forgiveness. But we don't like to hear that. We like in our society to say, you can get divorced for whatever reason you want. In fact, don't get divorced, get married. Marry whoever you want. And my point is here is, what does the authority of God's word say on this? Is it, is it, do we come to it with a hardness of heart and interpret it and put our hardness of heart as the authority on what God is saying? Or is the authority based on what God's word actually says? Because when the Bible says something, do we believe it? Do we believe it? Especially when it says something plainly in the beginning, God, right? I heard about this pastor who I'm sure God used in many ways uh, over the decades recently passed away. And I'm, I read, I was just reading about him and I was talking about his beliefs on creation. And he says, the Bible doesn't prove or, or disprove or espouse or agree or go along with or not go along with evolution. I'm like, yes, it absolutely does. I'm like, is the Bible the authority or is it your science teacher or... The Bible is the authority. If you don't want to believe it, that's up to you and me. But it doesn't change what God has said and what God has done. You know, we have the Book of Mormon, right? They need an extra book to interpret what the Bible says for them. And the Bible says clearly, <laughs> Revelation was done. There's no further book coming that you need to interpret the rest of this with. In fact, the Bible interprets itself. The Holy Spirit is the teacher that we need. I saw a pastor the other day who was... Uh, a young guy apologizing to the community that God says is abominable, and I'm keeping it light for our audience here, but he's apologizing to them. I'm like, have you read this thing? How can you be a pastor? I don't, I don't know. I won't go down that road. But Jesus said, remember, if the works that were done in, Sod in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago and sackcloth and ashes. But what did God do? God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Western world today has given up all of God's authority. We now believe the insane, the abominable, obviously false things, and persecute anyone who doesn't go along with these obviously insane ideas. No longer is a Democrat versus Republican arguments over how much money to spend on the budget. I mean, they still argue about that. But it's really down to uh, <laughs> arguments on definition of what is life. And they don't even care anymore. They know it's life. They just say, well, do you want it or not? And that's whether it has value or not. What is a woman? Whose kids are they? If you heard the, the guy in the Oval Office say, say that the other day, that they're not our kids. They're the country. No, they're my kids. You want to make them your kids, I'm going to get in the way of that. And I'd say Corinth was very similar. 
they didn't have, but and the problem with Corinth though, right? Like, I don't want to make it like, oh, well, Corinth was that way, so that means that we have an excuse. Corinth wasn't, didn't have hundreds of years of Christian foundation. Corinth was a very worldly city that people got saved in uh, from the gospel getting there, but they didn't have good discipleship. They didn't have a good pastor who was plugged in there, and they didn't have the word of God, right? The word of God was written to Corinth, so they didn't have, they didn't have that excuse that we have. And the church in Corinth was swept up by the society around them. And that's so easy for the church to do. I think there's so many good things that come out of the church in the past, you know, a couple hundred years with music and with evangelism, with, you know, not having to wear suits and all these other things. But at the same time, you know, there's that saying like, you got to hold fast to the doctrine, but the, the hand of the method is open, right? You know, if we want to use drums, that's fine. You want to use a guitar when it was cool in the 80s, that's fine. But is it really worshiping God? And we were talking with friends the other night, um, you know, about like large productions in churches and, and how churches can, can get so focused on the production, so focused on getting people to come in or be like the culture or be cool that they've forgotten what it's all about. And you can have two churches that the worship is well produced and there's all sorts of things going on with it, but one is really worshiping God and the other one is, I don't know, not. And this church in Corinth was confused about what love is. And I think that that's so similar to the way things in the world are today. People claim love everywhere you go. There's billboards. You are loved. That's not what that means. The fact that they steal the rainbow is a whole other story. Like you kind of missed the point of that. But somehow this church in Corinth, even though they were confused, they were sinning, they were fleshly, uh, I don't like to think that they had an excuse, but I think that they had done it in somehow in ignorance. Like I said, they didn't have the Bible because the Bible was being written to them. But they have an excuse. There's Romans 1 talks about that. Paul had been there. I'm sure that uh, they had the gospel. But they went off the rails. And as we study Corinthians, I know this is a long, a 17-minute intro just to get into this. I think that uh, we're through most of the hard rebuke for them. We have a little bit more to get through today. And we should probably go back and read in our own time the rest of it. But it clearly outlines things that for some reason, there's still confusion of in the church today. And we have the letters of the Corinthians, and yet the church is still confused about some of these things. Which I just, I just, I don't understand. I don't understand everything out of the Bible. I certainly don't understand everything about God. But when the Bible clearly says something, I just, I don't know how people miss it. It's like, have you just not read it? Okay, well, let's read it. and Let's go along with it. Because Jesus... Jesus is coming back, and I think we want to be ready for his kingdom. I don't think we want to shock when he comes back. I think we want to just coast right in uh, to heaven. But God, we thank you for this morning. Again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're gracious, and that even when we do need correction and rebuke, like it says in Timothy, that the word of God is good for all these things, for uh, instruction in righteousness and doctrine and correction and rebuke, and we thank you for that, God. So correct us where we need this morning. God bless your church, wherever states they're in. May they come to know you deeper and stronger and God really come under your authority because we are your church and your people and we want that in our lives we need that in our lives we don't want the tyranny of man's authority we want a march lock step under your authority in Jesus name amen so let's read first uh, Corinthians chapter 11 and we'll read uh, in a couple short chunks together starting in verse 17 it says Paul says now in what I have to say to you, I do not praise you. You have come together not for the better, but for the worse. First of all, when you come together as the church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you so that uh, those who are genuine may become evident among you. Therefore, when you come together into one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one eats his own supper ahead of one another. One goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Do you, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Well, thanks for writing this letter, Paul. I'm going to fold it up now and put it away. I was kind of hoping for a little something nicer for, from you, Paul. I thought we were doing a great job, Paul. And Paul, uh, Paul right off the bat, he goes, firstly... You know, he's got a thing, a, a, a bunch of things to say to this church. And he's 11 chapters in. And he says, you have come together, not for the better, but for the worse. 
That's rough. The church, it's the gathering together of God's people. It's supposed to be a good thing when the church gets together. But Paul is basically saying, you know what, guys? It would be better if you guys didn't get together at all. It's wor- you're worse off. People are worse off when you guys have church than before you came there. And I hope that that's not the case for us. I hope that when you leave here, that there's some sort of blessing from the Lord on your lives, right? And on my life as well. That none of us walk out here and go, man, it would have been better if I just stayed in bed this morning. And that's what he's saying about this church, that people were left worse off when they got, came there. And he says that there are divisions among you. That there's cliques. That the church is fighting and infighting amongst itself. Or even maybe like James says, because he talks about poor and rich here, that the rich are getting a good, good spot, the poor are shuffled in the back so no one can smell them. And there's good division. There's blessed subtraction when someone is causing division or is a problem in the church and doesn't come around or is out for their own way and they leave by one way or the other. That's blessed subtraction. You know, God invented multiplication and addition and subtraction. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians, even the beginning of 1 Corinthians, 10 chapters ago, he says, I plead with you, brethren, in chapter 1, 10 through 15, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household. So there's this house that's faithful and knows the church and knows Paul and says, Paul, there's a problem in this church. That there are contentions among you, she says. Now I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, all these guys, or I'm of Christ. And Paul says to them, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say I baptized in my own name. He's saying, you guys are getting wrapped up in the flesh about who's your favorite pastor, Who's your, do you guys prefer going on Wednesdays or Sundays? You guys adhere to this teaching or that teaching. You guys were baptized by this person or that person. So you're better off. The senior pastor baptized me. You only had a deacon baptize you. Paul says, is Christ divided? No, like there's no difference. You were baptized into Christ. And that's another message that we did a long time ago. But that this division among them wasn't a healthy division. Uh, you know, God sees seven churches and seven church ages, like we saw in Revelation, the types of churches. You know, some are necessary. Some of it's just based on time. Some of it's on location. But some of it is very fleshly. And I think we can see that today, that a lot of denomination splits are fleshly splits. It's about following one man over another man. He says there must be factions among you. You know, in Matthew 25, Jesus said himself that uh, nations will be gathered before him and he will separate one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. That God is going to divide his followers from those who didn't follow him. And that includes in and out of the church. That's just out of everybody. He's not even talking about the church, so to speak. The true church. And that the people, the sheep will receive the kingdom. Or the wheat from the chaff. There's that parable about Uh, the farmer growing wheat and the enemy comes in overnight and puts in tares and the tares and the wheat grow up and they look the same and they don't know, but he doesn't harvest them until the end because if he tries to pull them out now, he's going to hurt the good wheat. So that even amongst the church, there's, there's people who love God and people who don't love God, people who, and both of them say they love God. Both of them say they know God, but God waits until the right time to divide. So there's a right time for division. Pastor goes off the rails things happen, whatever, they start not believing the Bible, there's a time to divide, even amongst friends. And sometimes there's good division, right? Leaving and cleaving, leave your parents to go get married. And a division is good when one group or one set of people is attempting to stay under the authority of God's word while the other isn't. Or one group of people is attempting to stay under God's word and God's leading them to go somewhere else. That's a good dividing. Like a healthy church will divide and plant others. But certain denominations today, some parts are doing exactly this. They're going the ways of the world, and the rest of the denomination says, we can't go that way. Again, some of it's fleshly, and some of it's not. You know, some people start a new church because they think women need to wear hats all the time. Right? Like, the Bible talks about certain things like that, but it's not enough to start a denomination. 
I can remember just anecdotally when the senior pastor didn't show up at church in New York that there were certain people who wouldn't come unless he was teaching. I'm like, okay, great. Yeah, I know he's nice. I know he's popular. I know he's good looking. I know he can talk. I know he's friendly. I know he teaches the word of God and God speaks through him. But there's also deacons and elders and assistant pastors. Are you here to hear from that pastor? Or are you here to, are you here to hear from man? Or are you here to hear from God? Because God will speak through all of them, and God did. And the enemy loves to come and divide a church or divide a family or divide friends where there shouldn't be division. He loves causing division. And that's why God gives, I don't want to get off that either, that's a whole other message about there's right and wrong ways to handle conflict so that we're not unwrong, you know, we're not unwrongfully, not wrongfully divided, right? Because there's a difference between genuine faith. There's a difference between real believers and not. And sometimes that division comes now in this life. Sometimes it's later so that the good weed is not torn up like we said. And Paul says that there has to be now. He says there must also be factions among you that the genuine may become evident. The cream will rise to the top, right? But then he starts talking about the Lord's Supper. And communion mainly, but it seems that the Corinthian church, or at least maybe more of the early church, had a lot of feasts associated with communion. Uh, at church, we've had potlucks. We've had some churches regularly have meals, barbecues, Super Bowl parties, all that stuff. And they're all very good. And however, there have been few that have had communion at them. And I think that in some sense, that's a shame. We should have communion more often together, especially when we eat, especially during a holiday, especially during a feast, because that feast is such a picture of heaven and the Lord and our lives with him that when we get together as believers, we're feasting, we're laughing, we're not cared about work, we're enjoying each other, we're eating, not a care in the world. So why shouldn't we remember the Lord in that? It's just, it's such a heavenly picture. But Paul says that when you guys do this, you have these love feasts. And they probably even call that love feast this Sunday, 1230 after second service, right? That people would show up and some of them would show up who are hungry, who maybe were poor, and they wouldn't get anything to eat. Or they would only get up and there was only a side salad left, right? And it was only the bits of the salad that no one else wanted. There were no bacos in there. And then the other people who maybe had food but realized, hey, church is having food this Sunday, so I'm going to show up early and be first in line. And free food, right? I mean, free food brings everybody everywhere. You want to get a bunch of high schoolers to do anything, you just say free pizza and they'll show up. I mean, I will show up. If you say free pizza, I will be there. But some people gorged and some people went hungry. And this was meant to be a church event where we all come together. And yes, we all eat, but it's also meant to minister to those who need it. And the people who didn't need it, in fact, were even getting drunk. Right? Like, they drank wine. You can argue about back in the day about wine and the percentage of alcohol and the fact they didn't have refrigeration and other methods, right? And we can get into that another day. But they were getting drunk on stuff that you didn't necessarily have to get drunk on. You could have just drank wine with dinner and been fine. But they think they're having these great parties, just like the world around them. You know, I, in college, the crazy parties you'd have and food and cups everywhere and the amount of cleanup afterward was insane. You know, never go to a frat house because it was always sticky. But they were having parties. And Paul says, I do not praise you. It's shameful, guys. You're shaming the word of God. You're shaming Jesus by doing this. And you call this a communion? You call this a love feast when you're pushing and shoving? And, and I mean, so that's, it's, it's basic, right? You know, we're teaching Timmy to clean his room. It's simple. But how often it isn't practiced in the church. And I say the church, I mean me too. I'm part of the church. The simple things go overlooked, I think, a lot of times in our lives and in the church and in spiritual pursuits in search of something more spiritually profound. I remember years ago, a pastor came to church and shared that, uh, you know, it takes more Holy Spirit to do the dishes, and I think I've shared this before, than to share the gospel. He's right, because we can get soaked up in the glory of teaching a message or leading worship, or I shared with someone on the street today. Yeah, but did you love your wife when you got home? Did you clean up after yourself? You know, like, Sometimes it takes more Holy Spirit to do the little things than it does the glorious things. Because there's a lot of people who stand in pulpits who get a lot of glory now who, when heaven comes around, God's like, I've got a double judgment for that. 
In Luke 14, 8 through 14, Jesus says, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, Hey, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, come up higher. Then you have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Then he who also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Then when the world gives a party... You know, a political fundraiser, they're not inviting anybody. They're inviting people at $8,000 a plate because they want to get repaid for it, right? Um, and I get fundraising dinners. That, you know, we used to go to one in New York for a pregnancy center, and it was, it was great. The church would pay for it. Um, or pay for our table, rather. Uh, but, man, like, that's the way the church should be. It should not be, let's invite all the people who can come who have money. Let's invite all the people. And if people have money, great. If they don't, well, let's be able to meet their needs and meet their food needs. And when the Corinthians met together for church, a meal with communion, it wasn't just Burger King lunch, it was Burger King and something special. We'll have a little worship, we'll have a little meal, we'll have a little communion. Some showed up and helped themselves so much so that it hurt other people. And that shouldn't be the church. When we show up, it should never hurt other people. It should bless other people. I remember we were invited recently to a, a dinner at a church in town, and it was great. There was lots of food, there was food left over, they handed out food at the end. No one was pushing and shoving. I feel like everyone had enough to eat. The leaders were serving. It was good. But in Corinth, it was like when you go to Pizza Ranch on a family night, and it's insane. <laughs> Food's everywhere. People are shoving, I want more pizza. You know, it's out of control. It's the, it's the flesh. It's the belly. But the idea that, that this was their belly that they had to feed, this greed of self-indulgence at the expense of others, that the poor, again, were coming to get a free meal, but they couldn't get it because others were so greedy. And Paul says, hey, if you're hungry, just eat a snack before you go. And there's been many times in my life where I know we had a church meal or somewhere to go, and I'm like, I'm going to be so hungry, that's all I'm going to think about. Let me just have half a sandwich or something before we go, because I know it'll be too well. You know, just we're based on my schedule. Because I don't want to be sitting there and so preoccupied with filling my belly that I'm missing out on other opportunities. I remember a friend worked at a place called Ponderosa. I don't know if we have them out here. Um, I think they might have gone out of business, but it was uh, like a buffet. You come and get steak and corn and all sorts of things. And he said people would come and just sit there like all day. You remember one guy would like fall asleep and like get up and eat. He was like, I don't know what we can do about it. I think he maybe kicked him out once. But that shouldn't be us there just to sit all day and get as much as we can from, from the free stuff at church just because it's free, right? We shouldn't take advantage of the system. In fact, when we come to church, we should come to be a blessing, right? Like, it's good to get fed. It's good to hear the word and sit and be ministered to. I'm not saying don't, but what I'm saying is when we go there, I think the Lord would say it would be our heart should be, we're there to hear from the Lord, but we're also there to bless each other. So that when we come together as believers, it should be a time that's praiseworthy, praiseworthy of Jesus, praiseworthy to each other, and certainly praiseworthy to anyone who passes by. Let's go on. Verse 23 says, I have received the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, until he comes. That the beginning of communion is about remembering Jesus. The cracker and juice don't turn into the flesh. That's a whole other study. But it's about remembering what he did for us, not taking it for granted, realizing that it was a complete sacrifice for us, that he took our place, that every last drop of his blood was shed, that every part of Jesus' body was brutalized. And most of all, Communion means to come together, right? To remember that we were separated from God. That our sin separated us from God. And the only way back was from Jesus making us one again. 
by his separation, by his death, and by his blood. And that's where we get our life now, from and through his death. So we get our real sustenance in life, not from the french fries, not from the salad, not from the awesome bean recipe that I can't wait for you to make. We had that party the other day. But we get it from Jesus. We get it from his blood and his body. That even if we go to communion hungry and we just have a little piece of bread and a little piece of juice to remember him, that that to us should sustain our spirit more than a feast of all the other food. And that when we do this, we proclaim his death until his return. That we're supposed to remind the world when we come together and we have communion, that this is about Jesus' death and what it means and all it entails. And that we take it seriously. It's not to be taken glibly. It's not to be spilled. Not to be, yeah, it's crackers. If there's leftover crackers, I'm going to throw them out, right? If there's leftover juice, the kids will drink it, right? That's, it's just juice. It's just crackers. But when we take it and use it in this symbolic way to remember him, it should be important to us. And more than that, communion is a command. Communion is a command. Jesus says, do this. If I tell my kids, do something, I'm not kidding around. (laughs) Clean your room. It's not a suggestion, right? Take out the trash. It's not a suggestion. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Remember me. But for Corinth, communion had become a time to eat and gorge just like the world around them. Something very holy and very special. And even just beyond communion and just the simplicity of the church coming together, it had lost all value. In fact, it had become something that was, Paul said, it's better if you don't do it. It's like negative interest. or No, negative interest would be a good thing. If you were to lose all your value in something, right? It's like you're just leaking. You're not refilling. And so 27 says, Therefore, whoever... Uh, eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and unhealthy among you and many die. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we would not be condemned with the world. So, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone hungers, let him eat at home, so that you may not come together into condemnation. I will set the rest in order when I come. So this is a hard truth. Taking communion, and let me, I got a a little bit to unpack here, so bear with me on this. But taking communion unworthily makes us guilty of Jesus' body and his blood. Because when we do so, it shows we have not received the forgiveness of his body and his blood. Now, you might think, and a lot of people, you hear this and you might feel condemned, like, how can I ever take communion? I'm sinful. I'm messed up. I knew what I was doing on the way here to church tonight, Lord, and how can I take communion? I know better and I still sinned. How can I take communion, Lord? Well, nobody is worthy. That's not what it's saying here. It's not saying you must live perfectly and then you can take communion because that's not the point of the cross either. The point of the cross is that we are unworthy and we need forgiveness. Our sin has made us dirty. We need to be cleaned. Now, does the cracker and the juice cleanse us? No. But remembering his blood and that the blood cleanses us, that's what it's about because that's the point of the cross. That's the point of communion to remember that he alone is worthy that we are unworthy but he loves us we are sinful but he is perfect and became our sin for us because to take it unworthily to take it unworthily not to be unworthy but to take it unworthily is not about our actions it's not about our need for forgiveness in our life or not because we all need it it's about our heart and it's about our attitude towards it communion towards Jesus, towards the cross, and towards God's authority. When he says, this is wrong, and this is not. This requires forgiveness, and I will give it to you. I will reason with me. Come, even though your clothes are uh, dirty, I will make them white as snow. 
because it's about our attitude. Do we really repent? Do we really want that forgiveness when we remember it? Does it really mean anything to us that Jesus died on the cross for us for the things we did? Like I said, even maybe an hour ago. Because remember, 1 Samuel 16, 7, uh, second part says, The Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The world might look on and say, look at these people, they're having so much fun, they're eating, they're drinking, they're having a great time. I should join this church too. It's just like all my friends do, but now I get to say that I, I go to church and I know God. But Paul says, let a man or a woman examine him or herself. To examine yourself. That's what communion should start with self-examination and i'm not trying to talk about staring at your navel and all you know all this weird stuff but that's how we came to jesus in the first place we saw our lives that it was falling apart that we were coming up lacking and we needed what a savior because if we look honestly <laughs> i think if any of us honestly look in the mirror you know i was thinking about this morning after uh going studying through this i'm like man i've been Realizing I need to lose weight for 15 years now. And it hasn't happened because I keep realizing it and looking in the mirror and not doing anything about it, right? I think that's the same thing. Sometimes we look at our lives and we don't want to look because we know when we look, we know what we're going to find. We're going to find things out of shape. We're going to find things out of place. We're going to find things that we know to be wrong. Know that need to be forgiven, corrected, or changed. And I think that's why we don't look. Why would I want to? <laughs> Nobody needs to see that, right? I don't need to see it. Because the more we look, the more we see. Buying a used car. I bought another used car recently. <laughs> I've got a problem. It's an addiction. The more you look, the more you see. The closer, oh, well, there is, oh, well, that's why the switch, you know. He told me that the, uh, uh, the back window, it just needs uh, the clips, and he has the clips. So I, Audi, uh, first car in the world, I've had to take a part of trim off the outside of the car to get a bolt off off the inside of the car to get the window out. The Germans, I don't know. I think they engineer stuff, they over-engineer it, and they don't care if anyone has, ever has to take it apart. But I finally get this window out, and it needs way more than that. Thankfully, I've, I've, oh, I found a kit online to repair it because they don't sell the part. Anyway, long story short, you buy an old car, the more you look, the more you find. You know, they call it the 10-foot paint job. It looks great from 10 feet away, but you get closer, you start seeing bubbles and rust. and You know, just like when you buy a house. You go, that quick walk through the house. Oh, it's fantastic. It's going to meet all our needs. But then you begin spending time there, and you go, Nope, that's crooked. Nope, that doesn't move. Oh, it leaks. You know, you start to find all these things that are wrong with it the more you look. And so at some point, you just have to stop looking because otherwise you'll be at Home Depot the rest of your life. But that's the first part of communion is seeing how we still need Jesus daily, moment by moment, like we sang today. Because if we don't, we're showing that we don't really believe, that we don't really love God in a sense, or at least deeply. In vain, we take this thing that should be a sign of our forgiveness, but now becomes a sign of our condemnation. In John 3, Jesus, you know, for God so, gave, uh, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, he goes on and says that uh, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of Jesus. And that's the same way with communion. It's unworthy because you're treating it that way. Not because there's not an opportunity to examine yourself and be forgiven no matter what it was. Even if it was you cursed out your wife two seconds before they handed out the communion. If you repent at that moment, if you said, God, no, I know I was wrong. That was messed up. Please help me. You're worthy of communion. You're taking it worthily. That's the point of it. And the, and the act in some way brings more sin upon us if we take it unworthily. Because it reveals the condemnation that, like I said, was already on us it was already there that's why the world hates christians that's why the world hates god because they feel the weight of the condemnation of their own sin upon them and anytime someone makes them look in the mirror they hate what they see and so they try to cover it up they try to break it they try to get rid of it and paul says something even more hard and i'm going to try and close it quickly here that many are weak many are unhealthy and many have even died in this church because they took communion in vain. You think about all these deaths just happening in healthy people these days. We know what it's from. Well, you know, it'd be great to see if the media or the government ever admit to it. Maybe 50 years from now. But in Corinth and in all of history, I'm sure there's been the same thing. 
Ananias and Sapphira, and they lied. They didn't have to tell how much they were giving, but they lied and they died for it. I would have to say that there are people who, and now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying if you're sick, you're sinning, there's, there's a whole other message on that, 10,000 messages on it. But if we come to the Lord and we come in vain and we're asking for prayer, we're asking for forgiveness, but we don't actually mean it, like I can remember my life, before I knew the Lord, how many times I prayed and I go back to doing the next thing the next day, it wasn't, didn't stick, so to speak. That you think you're doing, you think you're a Christian, but your life isn't changed. You claim to be righteous, but you're just self-righteous. You take communion, but you don't have any repentance in your life. Well, maybe you did get sick for a reason. Maybe God allowed you to lose your job for a reason. Maybe you even got cancer and died. Maybe that he, maybe you got cancer and would have gotten anyway, but maybe. And I know this is kind of weird, and I'm not, I don't want to make a doctrine of it, but maybe if you had repented, God might have been able to heal you. I don't want to make too much of a doctrine of it because it's a little verse, but I think the point is we need to take communion more seriously. And not just communion, but our relationship with the Lord. That it's no small thing that God's Son died on the cross for our sins. And that when we sin, yes, we have a high priest that we need to go to, but we shouldn't take it for granted. I'm not saying that any of us do. I just think it's a healthy reminder as we read Corinthians. This is legit. It's a real deal. It's not just a, a club on Sunday, a free mug, or a free meal. It's Jesus died and bled for us. Let's make sure our lives fall under his authority. Because if we would judge ourselves, Paul says we would not be judged. That forgiveness in that sense starts with us realizing we just need it. That's all I can know, Lord. Realize I needed him. That we're wrong and we need God to make us right. Like Jacob, that transformer, he said the transformer put his own part on wrong. And that's what we do. Without God, we try and assemble and fix our lives, but we put all the pieces in the wrong spots. And we wonder why our lives are broken. We wonder why we're depressed. We wonder why our relationships fall apart. You know, it's not all the time, but, well, maybe it's because you're putting things in the wrong place. And there's only one who knows the right place for them. You know, Proverbs 3.11, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as the father and son in whom he delights. That God corrects us. God gives us hard scripture like Corinthians and the passage in Mark I said before, because he doesn't want us to continue down the wrong path. He knows that the little white lie that we're telling now, one day will lead us to a life of being a liar and awful and in ruin. That the little, th- the little Snickers bar we stole from grandma, right, eventually will, could be us down the street stealing a car and going to jail forever. That these little things, if we continue doing them, God corrects us in them, really because he doesn't want us to face the consequences. He doesn't want us to live a life full of regret, full of pain, full of things that could have been better if we had just been corrected early on. You know, they say like, if you're like one degree off, right? couple minutes down the road if you're in an airplane a couple minutes down the, the sky it's not that far but you go off a degree for hundreds thousands of miles you're way off of nowhere right when a plane goes off course they have no idea where to look when it crashes and god doesn't want our lives to be that way and when if we have those things in our life he can rec- he can correct them he can fix them but he doesn't want them to happen in the first place and even then there's things in my life that, I, that i've had that are I wish I could change and I can never change them. And I have to trust in the grace of God to get me through day by day to continue on with him towards heaven because I either didn't know him or knew about him or even worse, the things I did after I knew him and I have to deal with the effects of that forever. Everything okay? Okay. But the end of it here is that we love each other, that we wait, we put each other first. We serve each other. If you're hungry, like I said, eat a snack before church. And I love that Paul says, I'll set the rest in order when I come. <laughs> it's chapter 11. He's already said a bunch of things. He said firstly, and I think he got through all this stuff. And he's like, ah, Corinthians, I'm going to deal with the rest when I get there in person. Let's go on and talk about the gifts of the Spirit and about love. Because the Corinthian church had a lot going on. And I think a lot of it was personal. A lot of it they needed to hear face to face, and Paul was about to do that. He wasn't about. To, he, he probably, maybe he didn't have enough ink to write out all the stuff that he had to correct them on. He just needed to be there. 
But as uh, Corinthians continues, like I said, spiritual gifts are next. And then that famous chapter about love that even the world knows, you know, love is kind, love, you know, love hopes all things, believes all things, right? We love to quote that. But it's sandwiched right between two thick chapters on spiritual gifts. And the world loves chapter 13, and the church focuses on chapter 13, yet somehow the church is completely clueless on chapters 12 and 14. And they're doing things, you go, guys, did you even read? You read chapter 13, why just get 12? But God is gracious, and so in in the light of God's grace, let's examine ourselves, and maybe next week we'll take communion, we're prepared for it, but God, we love you, we thank you that you're Grace is always for us. We thank you that you give hard letters and you rebuke when necessary. God, we need it. We need correction, rebuke, instruction, and righteousness. But God, let your church take communion. Let us take communion uh, seriously in, in a holy manner. Not, not, not of our own holiness, but in recognition of your holiness. And so, God, we ask that your church would be in a place like the song I was listening to yesterday, that God, your holy fire would come through and burn things away. We would just be left with that holy ground. So we ask in Jesus' name, bless our day and bless your word. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light until the door.